Good morning, Tyrits Juharis. Ich heiße Susie Fox und das ist Weibertech, a feministische Podcast auf Yiddish. A Dank fahren herin. Hi everyone, my name is Sandy Fox. In Yiddish, I'm named Sosia. Those who've been following the show for a long time know that while Weibertech is a Yiddish language podcast, every once in a while I like to put out an episode in English to give back to the people who support the show, who don't speak Yiddish. But it's also because every once in a while there is just a person, a creator, a thinker, an artist who I want to give a platform to and they don't speak Yiddish. Actually, the person you're going to hear from today is one of the reasons I started Vibratech in the first place. Her name is Sharon Mashihi. She has a new audio series called Appearances. She's an Iranian Jewish artist and podcast producer who's best known for her work on a show called The Heart. And The Heart is probably one of my favorite podcasts of all time, if not my favorite of all time. So I'm super excited to present to you a conversation I had with Sharon Mashihi about her new project. And you can check out a written version of this through Jewish Currents. So this is also uh, the first and hopefully not the last collaboration that Vibratech is doing with Jewish Currents. So to give you a sense of how appearances sounds and feels, I'm going to play the trailer and then we'll launch right into the interview. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Sharon Mashihi and that you will check out Appearances. All of the episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy. There's this thing that I think I want, which is to be a mother, to have a kid. And I'm in my late 30s, so it feels like it's now or never. Your eggs are at a normal level of decline for a woman your age. That's a relief. Or, let me say, slightly more declined. Well, which is it? Normal level or slightly more declined? Normal to slightly more declined. What? And yet, it can't be now. It just can't be now. Because my life... Can you please talk to me? I don't think I want to. My life is just a little too sad right now. Can we, like, spoon or something? No, not right now. It's embarrassing enough to be a woman who's attracted to men. I'm a woman who's only attracted to men who dominate over me. I can't seem to figure things out with my boyfriend. Obviously, I'm not the right boyfriend for you, and you're not the right girlfriend for me, but I clearly love you, you clearly love me. And I can't seem to figure things out with myself. It feels like things are so happening so fast in my life, and I don't know where I am and what I'm doing, and like my past and my present, and all of it is quite confusing and fast. And I know, I just know, that I will never be able to take any steps forward until I reckon with my history. I could have married somebody educated. The family I come from. You want to marry somebody else? You should have married them. I don't give a shit about you. And the place that we come from. Where am I from? Like, what's my ancestry or where am I from in America? In our mind, in our great neck, white American mind. They were running from something, but none of us had an idea what. They were very wealthy, something to do with carpets, and they were from a place called Iran. Gale, gale. Look, Anza! 
This is Appearances. You know, journey, life has a journey. I don't know why the fuck you're calling me. And everybody's journey is different. What kind of husband are you? Can you please call your freaking wife? I am busy. I am so lonely. <laughs> like, at, at what point does your life get to be yours? I don't know. Maybe never. Episodes drop starting Tuesday, September 29th. So who I am, uh, I'm a person who grew up in an Iranian Jewish household in a community called Great Neck, which is um, depicted in the show. And I, as an artist, maker, professional person, after high school, I went to college and studied film. And I've kind of found filmmaking to be too big, too sexist, too overwhelming. Um, I worked in theater for a while. I had some lost years just doing 20s stuff, you know, um, waitressed for many years. And um, I, at some point, fell in love with audio and started to inch my way towards starting to work in audio and then got serious about it in 2011 when I did a semester of audio documentary school. And um, I should say all along, I was still a little bit working in film and I was working as a screenwriter, which I I do think the screenwriting stuff is relevant because the two educations, radio storytelling and screenwriting kind of fed each other. And I think my background in theater also really kind of shaped the aesthetic of appearances. So uh, I had all of these things and it was really uh, after I went to SALT that I started to have a more clear career path because for a long time I thought I was going to like, I've had applied to grad school to be a theater maker. I thought that theater was going to be my main thing, Um, but I decided to go towards radio and soon after I went to SALT, I'm met Caitlin Prest and she and I became very good friends and uh, we started a audio performance series called Radio Cabaret and then we became roommates and then I became an editor on Audio Smut and then on The Heart and um, a few years ago I start. I didn't for a long time that I was in radio I didn't even like let myself dream that one day I would have my own show but um, I'm in this self-help program where like you have to dream, you have to have a dream. So I was like, oh, maybe my dream should be to have my own radio show. And at a certain point, I was getting burnt out on being, I wasn't just Caitlin's editor, I was like working as an editor and I was helping a lot of my friends make their art and I was getting jealous. And Caitlin said that if I helped her make her art just one more time, she would help me make my own show. And so I agreed to be her editor on The Shadows, even though I didn't really want to. But it was ultimately a fulfilling experience. It was just, I was tired of being an editor. And uh, she came through on that and she really helped me, supported me in so many ways um, to get to make appearances. And then creatively, what made me want to make appearances 
Um, I had made an audio documentary about my relationship with my mom called Fan Khubam, I Am Good. And um, it, I really loved making it. And I felt that I had sort of found my voice while I was making it. And I sensed that people liked it. And so I thought, um, maybe I should do more stuff like this. <laughs> I don't know, rather than like, yeah. So, and also I had had, I had been nursing, making a film about an Iranian American family for a while. Like ever since I saw American Beauty when I was in high school, I was like, oh, I want to do this. But so, uh, yeah, that's the whole, that's it. Whole answer. Great. Um, so appearances begins with some American Jewish history, which was exciting to me as an American Jewish historian, uh, a topic you know, that's close to my, my heart in a way, uh, in my, in my upbringing, cause we're both Long Islanders and my mom grew up right next to Great Neck, uh, to be able to envision, you know, Great Neck when I'm listening to this, I said watching because it feels like watching when I'm listening to this, um, show, it really, it's really, really, um, there for me. And, you know, this is a perspective that you don't hear a lot in American Jewish history at all, the Iranian Jewish experience, and it's a, it's problematic. Uh, for sure. So in the prologue, you you go through a little bit about uh, what Great Neck is and what it, you know, what who, who it contains, you know. So maybe you can kind of give the listeners, for, for people who are not from Long Island or the New York area, obviously most people listening probably are Jews, so they might have heard of Great Neck. But if you could describe a little bit of, um, of Great Neck's history and contemporary context and sort of why the prologue for you needed to have this historical and contemporary uh, contextualization because it's a little it's a little surprise but in a good way I think it was really smart. Well, so I'll start by sort of summarizing. You know, I don't say much about the his history, but I guess uh, we know so little that if maybe it feels like new information. Um, so, Great Neck. Um, happens to be the town where F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby takes place. Um, and it takes place in Great Neck in part because some of it was written in Great Neck. F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in Great Neck um, for some years around the time that he was writing the book. I think it was some years. I might be wrong. It might have even been just like one summer, I'm now forgetting. But in, in any case, he was here. And so Great Neck is one of the eggs. It's the egg where I believe Nick lives. And then the other egg, I'm getting my, uh, somewhat confused, is, is Port Washington. And so uh, apparently F. Scott Fitzgerald was not the only sort of American luminary who was living in Great Neck in the 20s. Um, I read that Charlie Chaplin lived there for some time and lots of other Hollywood show busy people. And it was a really prosperous town, mostly because of its proximity to Manhattan. And, um, and in the podcast, what I do is I just take us a little bit through American history. So there's the roaring twenties and then in the thirties, there's the depression and Great Neck is hit by the depression. And, um, in the 30s, 40s, it was hard for Jews and all, you know, marginalized people. But in, in that time, I no longer consider Jews to be marginalized people in the United States, but in that time, they were. And so it was hard for them to 
um, buy houses. And for whatever reason, I'm not so sharp on the history, but uh, for whatever reason, it like great, like there were lots of empty mansions and Great Neck was sort of in ruin and um, people were selling to Jews. And so it became a pretty Jewish town. And um, in 1979, there was a, a revolution in Iran and many people fled Iran. And um, one of the groups of people that fled Iran was a, a large percentage of the Iranian Jewish population. Um, some who went to Israel, some who came to the United States, some who went to France, some who went to Switzerland. And um, a, a large percentage of the people who came to the United States ended up in Great Neck. And, you know, some of that might just be that like New York is an immigration point and Great Neck is a suburb of New York. But I also know that in Iran, a lot of the Jewish community sort of lived in clusters and they were used to being clusters, clustered and they felt safe in clusters. And so um, knowing that Great Neck was a Jewish town was a draw for Iranian Jews. I'll, I'll say, I mean, I had um, a number of Muslim and Baha'i friends growing up in, in Great Neck who were Iranian. So it's not by any means all the Iranians there are Jewish and not by any means is the town completely Jewish. But um, the large majority of people when I were growing up, when I was growing up were. And um, that's, that's it. Do I say other things in the prologue? I think that's basically it. I, I think what I like in, in, in the prologue that like brought comfort to my own heart is that um, when I was growing up, I kind of thought of myself as not having a history. I mean, this isn't something I gave much thought to, but because I was taught American history and my ancestors weren't here for it, I didn't like consider myself as somebody who had a history. And I certainly didn't consider myself as like part of an American story. And so it was important to me in the prologue, um, I sort of take us through the decades and you hear John F. Kennedy's voice, and then you hear Nixon's voice, and then you hear the Ayatollah Khomeini's voice in Iran, and making it all part of one picture, and then having the Iranians come to Great Neck, and then having um, my parents' generation give birth to my generation. I It felt special to me to put myself in a line from F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is where the prologue starts, all the way to myself, or the character who's based on me fighting with her mom about condoms, like, I don't know, that like gives me a bit of a wholeness so that I don't feel like I'm kind of an out of nowhere person, which is what I think I have mostly felt and understood myself to be. That makes sense. I, I have to say that I don't think my academic field or Jewish education has done a good job in any way, shape or form of connecting um, Iranian, Syrian, lots of different Jews who are non-Ashkenazi into the historical picture. So yes, it's, it's not a long episode. Um, for me, it didn't present particularly new information, but you do it with such concision. And I'm curious, was it always clear to you that the show had to begin with that background because it might be just such a, you know, foreign or out there story for listeners who are not Iranian or not Jewish, not from New York. I mean, you know, what went into that decision? Because uh, it's definitely worthwhile, but it's, it could, you know, I guess it could have happened without it. It was a very different show. Yeah, uh, I was always on the fence about it. So 
at some point early on in the process, um, I was talking to Mola Board, who's a collaboration, a collaborator of mine on the project about how the show begins. And I was telling her that I was, I had multiple times reread the novel Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, which I'm a huge fan of, and which is just such a good contemporary family saga where you feel like you get to know all the members of the family and you see all the ways that they s sabotage their lives and sabotage the familial love that they all want so badly. So I love this book. And this book starts with a chapter that's told from the perspective of the neighbor. And one day I read this chapter out loud to Mo and I was just like, I just love this. And she was like, you should do this. This show should start that way. And I was like, I don't know. Ugh. And then um, I made a very, my process in making this show has been to just make quick prototypes. Anytime there's an idea, execute it in sound, share it with Caitlin, get, get Caitlin's point of view. So I made a prologue that didn't have the history of Great Neck, but it did have those scenes with the curtains. So you hear about the neighbor looking through the curtains and um, I sort of set up the town of Great Neck without going too much into its history. And that prologue for a long time felt so different from the other episodes that I had that we were really on the fence about whether we would include it. And it was sort of like always back burner, we'll decide at the end whether the prologue will live or will not live. But Caitlin felt it was important that the prologue have even more history that it not just be about great neck today she was like people don't even know that there's such a thing called iranian jews and like you should contextualize this and i'm like oh, but that doesn't really have to do with the story and i think the day that we we really we i really built that transition that starts at f scott fitzgerald and lands at the teenage girl suddenly it felt like oh this this is really important and if the whole crux of this story is carrying the baggage of where you come from. Like we should be setting up where this character comes from. Um, that said, from the very, very beginning when this show was just an idea, I wanted The Great Gatsby to be very present. And at one point I was trying to get permission to um, document for an entire six week period, a high school class in Great Neck that was studying the Great Gatsby. And I wanted that documentary to run through the show. Like I wanted, I wanted this to be so Gatsby infused. And ultimately after several attempts of bringing Gatsby through lines into the show, at one point of even trying to have an outline that perfectly mirrored the Great Gatsby, those attempts all kind of failed. And so all we have is just like the mention of Gatsby at the very top. But I, I had a wish for it to be much more deeply engaged with, with that book because how cool if, there, if like, to kind of like make the statement that there's like many versions of a great American story. Something that was in the prologue, not, not too deeply, but a little bit is the mention that, you know, of course, as you said before, uh, Great Neck was open to Jews because of the depression. Um, it was one of the places Jews could, you know, to, could go if they wanted to leave New York City. Um, and Great Neck, uh, I, I haven't thought about this or studied this a long time, but I think Great Neck was of the early places that suburbanized um, as I think that line was probably built first which makes sense because it's not to the rest of them, which is a, a personal pet peeve of mine because my grandma lives in Port Washington. <laughs> um, 
So, so there's also that story there of these Ashkenazi Jews who are living there and then Iranian Jews come in and maybe they haven't heard that they're Iranian Jews, right? It's not just Caitlin or people who are listening, right? Um, there's, there's that whole story, which we don't have to get too much into, but I thought was worth sort of mentioning that, you know, there's, there's that, that tension or um, history there as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. This, again, like there's so many places where this show could have gone and there might be more seasons and it will go to those places. But yeah, there was going to be a lot more about race and the tensions in the town and Zionism and uh, racial identity among Iranians and Jewish racial identity and like all this stuff. But uh, it didn't it didn't go there. But there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Well, maybe we can unpack it a little bit. Um, I was wondering if you could just break down some terms. So you use the word Iranian American to describe yourself, which is sensible. I have, you know, we also hear the word Persian, to, especially among Jews or potentially not just among Jews, maybe Muslims also who left uh, after the revolution in 79, kind of maybe a distancing from modern or contemporary Iran. Um so, so can you just kind of explain if there's a difference or something that listeners should understand about those two different terms um, and, and why you use one over the other, or do you use both? I use both. I use them somewhat interchangeably, but I did make a conscious effort. Like, I actually, in the beginning, I didn't want this show to have anything to do with being Jewish because I... I have, I'm not so proud of my Jewish identity personally, and I, I have found that I prefer to align myself with my Iranianness than my Jewishness, which is, um, separates me from the rest of my family who prefer, even though my parents are so freaking Iranian, especially my mom, they prefer to like name themselves as Jews first. And I guess I, as a like, wish to have more sol solidarity with brown people and Muslim people who I feel like, um, I just, I, I wanna say like my heart is with you. My heart is on that end. So I, I my own psychology, I think that's why I lean towards using the word Iranian. Um, and I have heard it suggested that people use the word Persian to distance themselves from um, Iranianness, but that said, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear people who are like scholars of Iran and like really into Iranianness refer to themselves as Persian. So the words kind of are interchangeable, but like I can't deny that there's kind of a baggage and a weight to each one of them. But the irony of, is it that the word Iran, if I'm correct, comes from Aryan anyway. Um, uh. Yeah, I, I when you said Iranian American in the show, I, I noted it the first time. I was like, okay, that's inter that's interesting because I mostly hear people use the word Persian, and I'm sure there's a reason for it. And I I'm it's interesting to hear your reasoning for it. So to to think more about your Jewishness for a second, just because it's Jewish yeah. currents, so we're gonna we're gonna mention the Jewishness for sure. Um, maybe we can enter it through language. So first of all, I just want to say that I love how Farsi is just such a natural part of Joe's soundscape. And as someone who speaks other languages besides English and often sees how English language media doesn't do a great job with other languages, I actually really loved the decision to not always translate what your parents were saying to each other. I just 
loved that you kind of could just from their their you know the context and also the tones of their voices what kinds of things they would be thinking i i thought that was a really awesome choice that you kind of weren't holding people's hands through the farsi just saying this is the soundscape of my life and thus it's the soundscape of the show and then also regarding language um it caught my ear in the episode where you go to your parents' house for a big family gathering that you called the gathering Persian Shabbat, uh, as opposed to just Shabbat dinner or Shabbat. I was wondering, uh, you know, where did that language choice come from? What that might say about who you assumed was listening to the show and what they would understand or what their preconceived notions of what Shabbat is, and also what, what, sh- you know, what that meant to you to choose that framing. I think Persian Shabbat is so different from having like experienced some other Shabbats in my life. Um, first of all, I think one thing that is unique among Americans, American Jews, is that Iranian American Jews tend to celebrate Shabbat no matter how religious they are. They tend to have Shabbat dinner. So Shabbat dinner is not a marker of how devout you are and how observant you are in general and whether you even observe the other tenets of Shabbat at all. It's just everyone does Shabbat dinner because family is so central to Iranians, Iranian Americans, Iranian Jews. So that's one thing I think that I I, I don't know how common it is in other Jewish American communities unless people are religious to be so serious about Shabbat. And then the other thing is, is just like we, there's like the way we dress. I don't know. Like I know people dress up for Shabbat, but there's like, there are specific Persian aesthetics that like everyone is sort of like dressed in a certain style um, that you, like you can feel it's Persian-ness. And then there's also certain foods that we have every Shabbat that are specific to Persian culture. Like we always have gondi. We always have upgushed. Um, and there's like Friday night is, you know, I still, I, I just was talking about it in therapy in my last session. I talk about it all the time. I still carry so much baggage and pain around Friday night because it's like myself and the other Persian Jews I grew up with. We were never allowed to do anything on Friday night but Shabbat. And I still have that into my adult life, the amount of guilt and pressure that's put on me every single Friday. Um, The expectation that I show up, the expectation that I have nothing else going on uh, is kind of big. And then the other thing about Persian Shabbat is, I mean, maybe other Shabbats are like this too, but we tend to have big families and extended families and 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 lots of people uh i don't know so maybe the things i'm describing are not so different from regular shabbat but no i think there are differences and i think that was what was smart about using the term i don't know what it reads for people who are not jewish or less observant but for me as someone who does you know shabbat dinner every week i i immediately had a vision of some of those things you're saying, and I definitely agree with you that there's a difference where most, let's say, Ashkenazi American Jews are, if they're not very religious, they're probably not doing Shabbat every single week. You're definitely, you're definitely right about that. So, um, but I mean, I, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of your, your relationship with Jewishness, it, it, you know, what's very apparent from your radio work is that, of course, your relationship with 
with Greg and to some degree with your family or a, a relatively high degree your family is, is fraught. So, I mean, is it, is it tough to kind of find a Jewishness that's your own because it's so inherently kind of entangled with that? Or is that not something that's kind of been, I don't know, a priority among all these other things you're, you're grappling with? Well, I am so Jewish, <laughs> like in, you know, like when, when we think of this stereotype of like a neurotic questioner who's like obsessed with New York, I have that in me, like to the core of my soul. When I was growing up, I went to Hebrew school and I identified so much with Judaism when I went to Hebrew school. And I was very frustrated with my family who I considered to be like Jews only on the surface. And I was like, I had a relationship to, with, to God in my heart, you know? And um, on the podcast, I say that like the peeping Tom was my first imaginary friend. And I did have the peeping Tom as my imaginary friend, but God preceded the, the peeping Tom. And I spoke to God every night in my bed. And there were many years when I secretly observed Shabbat. So my family had Shabbat dinner, but I secretly didn't use electricity. And I, I secretly... Wow. You know, I wouldn't even like cut toilet paper. I would pull tissues. So, and like, you know, I know Woody Allen is a complicated person to talk about. So maybe this shouldn't go into the thing, but like obsessed with Woody Allen. Um, and I grew up around American Jews. Like my friends were like the Jewiest of American Jews. And so I feel that I, that culture is very in me. But around the time that I was 15, I started to be really upset about um, Zionism. And I started to also become really upset about the ways that I could tell that my family thought Jewish people were better than other people. Really upset. And uh, I remain really upset about that to this day. And that is what I think has really complicated my relationship to Judaism. Like now Judaism kind of gives me the shudders because I associate Judaism with um, a non-humanitarianness. I, I mean, it's so bad for me to be saying these things. It's, it's, it's the, I don't, I know that Judaism writ large is not this, but in my, family, I have, I started to think of Judaism as the thing that my family uses to not be compassionate to like human beings as a whole. And so I guess I, I'm like, in a, maybe a stubborn way, maybe in a childish way, I'm mad at being Jewish. Um, I don't, I don't feel very mature when I say this, but that's the truth of where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that all makes sense and thank you for sharing it. So to switch gears a little bit, um, in, in appearances and also in your last, uh, solo radio story, uh, your mother played a super central role. Uh, and I think, Probably for me, one of the most satisfying episodes of appearances is the one that comes from your mother's perspective. 
Um, your acting of her is downright beautiful. I mean, I should just say for people who haven't heard it yet, just the way that you're able to carry out all of these characters and the, the, the voices are so evocative. I mean, you know, it's, it, you can tell it's you, you can tell that it's, it's Sharon all, but, but they're different enough and they have personality and it's, it's really fucking good. But your mother is, I think the most, um, I don't know, the most evocative for me. So I was wondering what you learned from playing the role of your mother or rather a version of your mother. I know that, you know, part of this is the show is fictionalized. Uh, I believe you said six out of 10 <laughs> on the truth spectrum perhaps. Um, but, but yeah, so what did you learn from playing the role of your mother um, or your, a version of your mother uh, in terms of her experience in the world and also how she views you? Well, yeah, I, I do try and be really careful and, and say that Vita is not my mom. She's so not my mom. Yeah. And every time, like, I'd be working on the show and my mom would call me, I would be reminded again of just how much Vita is not my mom. But I did try to work stuff, some stuff out about my mom by writing and working with the Vita character. Um... I mean, I learned, the learning process really began when I made the documentary about my mom. That was a real personal life aha experience because I had all of this audio evidence of what our dynamic is like and what she's like and also I was hearing some of the things that she has had said to me so many times for the first time by listening to this audio over and over and over again. Um, because usually when I'm with my parents, the, and this is like a lifelong frustration, I get so defensive when I'm around them that real communication and a real meeting is not always possible. And having audio that I've recorded of us to spend time with and listen to dispassionately because at a certain point, you know, listening to the same thing over and over again, you stop having feelings about it and you can just kind of like take it as data. Um, I did learn some very basic things about my mom, which is that my mom is not able. Well, and actually it was a friend of mine, my friend Shira Naiman, who um, consulted a bit on the, pro on the project. Um, when she first heard, we had just met each other at an artist residency and she asked to listen to my work and I sent her the documentary about my mom and she wrote back, uh, she has a background as a psychologist and she talked to me about how um, for some people, we start to, she sort of outlined this spectrum. So there's some people for whom speaking the entire truth, knowing the entire truth of another person feeling like someone knows your everything about you, everything that's true about you, all of that is a channel towards love and closeness. And I'm that kind of person. And for another kind of person, love is only possible by knowing less. And my mom is the kind of person for whom love is possible by knowing less. And so there's this fundamental impasse between us where, um, you know, like my mom doesn't even, isn't even really comfortable talking about her childhood. I know very little about my mom's 
life. I know very little about her inner life. I've spent so much, I, you know, I spent and still spend so much time with her, but I don't really know her heart. I sort of have to guess at her heart because she's not comfortable sharing in that way. And in some degree, she doesn't really totally want to know my heart. And there's this one line that I have recorded of her that's in, in the documentary where she says, with you, I learned to keep my distance. She says a few things. She says, I learned that I can never get through to you and I learned to keep my distance. And it's a bit heartbreaking to me. You know, I heard, you know, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play. I hear my mother tell me over and over again that she had to learn to keep her distance because it was too hurtful to her to be close to me. Uh, and so in this series, I guess I really wanted to go into what would make a mother feel that way? Um, and like to really go into the feeling of like being so worried about your children that um, it doesn't feel safe to know them in their, in their totality because that is such a threat to know them in their totality. I, yeah, so I had some of this information before working on appearances, but in working on appearances, I really wanted to like channel that and, and feel that in my heart. And um, the first day that I recorded that episode, Vita, a lot of it was just, I did kind of a couple of hours of improvisational monologuing and I really like felt Vita was in me. I cried as her. I felt like I was crying her tears. I just like, I believe, I can't know what it feels like to be my mom. I can't, I don't know what it feels like to be a mother. I'm not a mother, but I really tried to like physically like let it go through my body. I felt like I was trembling her tremble. I don't know if that's true. That's what it felt like. Um, and so I think it opened up additional channels of compassion. Um, and I think another realization that I came to while working on the show is that I so fantasize about what my own life as a mother will be and uh, I shouldn't be too surprised if I find myself feeling quite similarly to my own mother and having quite a similar dynamic with my own child. I mean, the one thing of me, it will always be true that I always want to know everything about the people I love. I, that for me, there's like no, nothing I don't want to know about. And that will always be true. And in that way, I will be a different mother. But I do think that I will feel tremendous pain, tremendous worry. And I imagine that at some times, as it has been for my own mother, it will feel like more than I can bear. And I don't know. I can't predict what ways I might shut down to my children because of that overwhelmedness of feeling. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, as a listener, that episode for me, you feel that you're channeling your mother and it's incredibly intimate and emotional, I should tell you. I think I cried in Prospect Park and I think I cried here somewhere on television, somewhere boring. Um, and for me, I mean, I think it opened up also compassion for my stepmother, who I don't always get along with. Um, mother is an enigma to me. She was sick when I was a child and died when I was 18 and she couldn't really speak. So I have my own mom issues that are very different. They're not, they're, you know, they're just not even on the same planes of reality, but maybe that's why I found it also so emotionally affecting this idea of you channeling your mother. Cause I would love to know more about my mother. And in order to do that, I would, I would actually have to create a narrative for her cause I don't have one. Yeah. So I found that really powerful. Yeah, um, I recommend it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might do it. <laughs> I, might, I might copy you. I mean, it's just um, it would be satisfying to be able to know what she was like, and that would be really, really the only way to know. Who knows? I, I took an class once with. Sorry, I'll just say this real quick. I took an acting class with this teacher, Ruth Zipporah, who's Jewish, and um, she said something controversial, but she was just sort of like. We were doing an improvisation and she was like, I know what it's like to be a Vietnam War vet. <laughs> She's not a Vietnam, but just like in a moment, like it's a fucked up thing to say, but at the same time, in moments, we are able to channel human, like if, if it, you know, I believe in psychics. I believe, I be and I believe that there are moments where we can channel experiences that are not our own and that is especially true of ancestors and parents and people in our bloodlines. And it's shocking when we like deeply meditate on it, what is actually available to us. And we might be wrong in the details, but we can be so freaking spot on about the feelings because the feelings have already been transmitted to us. They already live inside of us. That's yeah, that's perfectly said. Um, and that's what you feel when you listen to that episode is that it does, it's not necessarily based on fact, but you, it, it's completely understandable or viable that, that that is the sort of thing that, um, Melanie's mother would be feeling and thinking, um, and had experienced when she was young. So speaking of characters, um, I want to talk about the lines between truth and fiction here in the show and, and how you made certain decisions. Something really clicked for me at the end of the wedding episode when you said that, um, when you thanked Kaveh Zahedi for, for his participation. I'm a fan of Kaveh's work and uh, I really like the show about the show. Um, and, you know, he, he makes similarly highly personal art, but with, I mean, at least to the extent that the viewer understands it, pretty much it's all the truth. I mean, whatever truth is, and that's the struggle there. Um, but and it, it's like, I love that show. And I also feel deeply uncomfortable about it. It's deep, you know, truth is not always the, <laughs> the answer, right? I mean, sometimes you do want to protect people. And I thought it was um, that your show you know, partly because I also know, you know, that you've been working on feminist audio for a long time. It seemed to me that you were really seeking here a balance between truth and, and also your parents uh, and your family's privacy and sort of trying to figure out that balance in a way that I think um, is gendered, but in a good way, right? So what you were saying before about like men in film school, and this is no like, I'm not shitting Kaveh, I like his work, I'm saying that, right? But, but 
you know, men in film school and, and that sort of like persona that they have. Right. And then you're making this decision that I think is responsible and, um, uh, kind. Um, and you're still making great art despite, you know, fictionalizing it to some extent. I mean, so just kind of explain a little bit more on how you landed on the decisions of fiction versus truth. Like how did you draw lines? How did you create characters that were so three-dimensional uh that were based in probably in bits and pieces on people but not entirely on those people uh it was the thing that i was wrestling from with the whole way through and i'm still wrestling with it i you know i don't believe that there's like such a thing as an ethical act and an unethical act. You know, ethics exists on a spectrum. And there, I, I, question, I question the ethics of um, memoir in general without the complete consent of all the people in your life. Originally, when I started making this, I wanted it to be completely fiction, but Again and again, when I would share content with Caitlin, the content that was closest to the truth was the strongest content. Uh, and more than I wanted this to be fiction, I wanted this to be good. So, uh, but I guess what I decided to do was to focus the most, to have the character based on me be the main character. Um, and the very little that you know about the parents, like you don't, you don't really know much about them. <laughs> you know, like um, the wedding night that I wrote is completely fabricated. I have no idea what my parents' wedding night was like. Um, the scene where Vita goes to the doctor and learns about her clitoris, I'm sure my mom freaking knew what her clitoris was. I, I was just trying to make a point about like not, not maybe having a total education about um, her own body, but I have no idea what my mother's sexual history is at all. Um, the dynamics between, you know, some of the things are true. Like my parents do have a difficult dynamic around money. My parents did fight a lot when I was growing up, but they also, it was complicated. They also stay together and they also like, there seems to be actually a lot of love there. And that's always been a mystery to me. And I talk about the mystery. Um, episode two, which is a lot about the parents' marriage. I, I did a combination of making things up. Actually, pretty much all of the scenes there are made up. Um, I used another couple to, I used my parents a little bit in complete invention a little bit. And I used, the couple in the documentary, A Married Couple by Alan King. Um, I used them because I was like, how, how will I make sure? Um, I also used um, scenes from a marriage. So, but then there are things like, I have had an abortion and I did have and I did tell my parents about it. And some of what's in there is, is based on the truth. And I know that um, it would very much upset my parents to have that probably be depicted. But I'm like, yeah, but it's my, but it's my story. It happened to me, but, mm, but like they're in it. 
So I felt complicated about that. Uh, I feel really guilty that the brother character, the joke's on him a lot of the time because my brother is a human being of depth and complication. And I, it's not because I think the joke is always on my brother. It's just because um, I wanted the show to be funny. And sometimes I've, I've, I saw an opportunity for some easy laughs there. And also because um, I don't know my brother very well. And I, don't, I really don't know the experience of, of being an Iranian American guy who decided to stay close to the community. And so I couldn't, I couldn't write it with the depth that if I were really rendering my brother that would, that would deserve. And so I couldn't. Um, my family has not listened to the show. I also have a sister and like, she's not represented at all. And at one moment I say that I have a sister and that she's not represented, but my sister would complicate the show so much because she, in some ways is very similar to me and I didn't, I wanted Melanie to feel very alone in her family. And um, I'm not quite as alone as Melanie because I have my sister. And uh, I was gonna say one, oh, but, so my family hasn't listened, not even my sister. She listened to the trailer and the prologue and she's been like nervous about listening to more. I was, after the show came out in the couple of weeks after, I was in a really bad mental state. Like I did not want to be alive. I was so consumed by guilt, really, really bad state. And so I called my dad and told him that the show was out and told him that I felt really horrible because I felt like the family would feel really exposed. And my dad asked to listen. And I told him that I didn't think he should listen past the prologue, but he should listen to the trailer in the prologue. And he listened and he sent me like a series of really effusive, supportive texts being like, this is so well done. You should never feel bad about expressing yourself. You know, if anyone is upset by this, that's their problem. And he was just really, really generous. So that, that helped alleviate my panic about it. But I still worry. I still don't know. I don't even fully know if my brother is fully aware that the show is out. Um, and I don't know how it would make him feel. Uh, I also have a sister-in-law. I don't know how the show would make her feel. And I worry about that. It's on my mind all the time. Um, but in terms of like, if I was really to expose my family, there's a lot of shit that could have been in here that's not. And I made a conscious decision to not expose any secrets that didn't feel like they were really mine to share. Well, I was going to ask if your parents have seen the show or your family has seen the show. So you answered that question and yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it sounds like a very big challenge, but I think, I think you did well in terms of balancing those things as far as I can tell. Um, I, I don't want everyone to think that the Persian community is so you know, and uh, I just don't want, I would hate for people to think that like my family is particularly troubled. I put this lens of troubled, you know, I think most families are probably troubled in this same way and particularly first generation families. That's, that's a big concern that, that my town is judgy and that anyone would use this show to assume that my family is somehow less loving or less functional than other families, that would really make me feel bad because I don't want my parents to walk into a room and for anyone to think that about them. 
I mean, is that part of why it's called appearances? I mean, it, it, yeah. it kind of keeps, has a, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's their whole time. The idea of like conformity and presenting yourself to be something you're not. And that's not unique to the Iranian community. Although, yes, like it does, you know, it can feel like it, maybe it's on steroids to some degree in the culture, yeah. but that's there. And I think, I think you're right. Like every family is messed up in its own ways and you're, and you're just telling some six tenths percent yeah. <laughs> sorry six out of ten yeah. uh, uh, of that truth and yeah um you know appearances catches your character at a crossroads and as far as i can tell that crossroads is relevant to your personal life um the decision of kind of what to do with her own fertility um you know it's a super familiar story to me as someone you know in my 30s with so many friends having the same conversations right now about you know how to you know, whether to go at it alone if you don't have a partner or the, the struggles, you, the conversations you have with Caitlin and your other friends in the show are very, uh, very real and relatable, I think, to a lot of people who have dated in places like New York, for sure. Um, how has exploring the op options through the care of Melanie helped you kind of make a decision or has it helped you make a decision about what you want to do vis-a-vis -vis having children? Well, before I made, started making the show, uh, I had a plan that Caitlin helped me devise, which was, the plan was spend one year pitching the show, spend one year making the show. And if in that time you don't organically end up with a partner who wants to have a baby with you, after you finish the show, start trying to get pregnant via insemination and have a baby alone. And so right now I'm in the few weeks following finishing the show. And the plan was, kind of is start pursuing having a baby alone. But the thing that the show did for me, which I had not anticipated, was it got some of the baby fever out of my system. Like I got to um, live with the content. I got to have an avatar of me, get pregnant, have a baby go the whole way. And I, so I don't feel, I thought as I got older, I would feel more urgency. Paradoxically, I'm finding myself with a little bit less urgency, um, but I'm still very much turning over this question. And this question is just like really causing me stress in my dating life. Um, uh, Cause I still, even if I'm, pursue single motherhood like I still really would love to have love and partnership in my life and um and I don't know I mean the the other thing that I I had like before COVID hit I had lined up um a really kind of sweet job that would make the motherhood make perfect sense and have the motherhood be compatible with continuing to be an artist and like financially all work. And that fell through when COVID hit. So I'm also just in a bit of a limbo state where I'm trying to figure out what my next work move is. Um, so I don't know, it's still very much on the table for me that I may pursue single motherhood, but whereas it had felt like a definite plan before I made the show, I'm, I know now more than ever how little I know. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe that's fodder for season two. Maybe it's fodder for season Figuring two. Figuring it out. Yes. Yeah. 
Right. I mean, it is interesting that the show comes out, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, but you can tell that it was, you know, mostly conceived of for, for sure before. I mean, do you have anything you want to add about how the coronavirus played into the last stage of editing or creating? I don't really know, like, the timeline. You definitely feel it's a pandemic world, but that it must have impacted, you know, what was going to happen going forward. Yeah, well, one of my rules of writing is write about what you're thinking and feeling today, even if it has nothing to do with the story. And oftentimes you can stick that writing into the story and it will feel relevant because human experience is human experience. And so even though the majority of the production of period of this show had begun before the pandemic, um, Caitlin and I kind of talk about the old version and the new version of the show. The series was very different up until about February when uh, we cracked episode one. And that really changed the identity of the show. Once I had a draft of episode one, it's very similar to the draft that we hear in the show. And so actually like the new version of the show, like all of the episodes that we hear were created after the pandemic, after lockdown started. And I would, and so a lot of the, like the feelings of isolation and, and being far away from feeling far away from family uh, come from me writing about feeling that in the pandemic, a lot of the dread of the future is actually pandemic dread that I'm writing into a pre pandemic world, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, that does make sense, actually. Great. I think that's it on my end. Do you have anything you want to add? Um, I'm, I'm a little bit self-conscious because I know this is going into Jewish currents and I just like crapped all over being Jewish. I mean, if you want to add to that, I can always shift it around. And it's okay. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people who read Jewish currents are similarly disaffected by mainstream Judaism. Yeah. I guess something that it brought up for me was wondering, one of the things is that there's a lot of really cool, different kinds of alternative Jewish spaces going on, but like, like so many things, they're highly Ashkenormative, right? So even what I do, like engaging with Yiddish, for me, that's a way to engage with Jewishness that doesn't have to do with Israel doesn't have to do it really with very much of what I grew up with. I mean, Yiddish, yes, for sure, it's, it fits into this Ashkenormative framing, but it's also like most, most Ashkenazi Jews let Yiddish go. I wouldn't exactly say it, it fits in perfectly with that, right? It's not bagels or Seinfeld. It's, it's a language that everyone basically decides to let go. Um, so what you said brought up for me, and this doesn't have to go into the show, I'm just like, I'm interested in what you think is that uh, these alternative Jewish spaces are, despite, you know, efforts to involve Mizrahi and Jews of color voices, like still heavily Ashkenazi in a way that might just not kind of satisfy whatever you might be looking for, or that's not the issue. Like, or, you know, it doesn't necessarily that, mean it's the that issue. actually could be true. And and the thing is, is I actually don't know personally any Mizrahi Jews kind of of my ilk. 
I don't know any lefty Mizrahi Jews. I don't know queer Mizrahi Jews. I don't, I've never met any. I've never met a Mizrahi Jew that I would ever in a million years date. Cause everyone I know is actually quite conservative. We don't have the same politics. We don't kind of have the same, are not of the same culture exactly. So that's a good point. I, and, um, yeah, like if I if I were to meet more people like that, I might feel a deeper connection. I know that um, the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, JFRED, has like a Mizrahi caucus that you might look into if you like post pandemic to meet cool people. It's, it, it will be food for thought for me to think about that. But I, and I, I mean, also added to the pocket of immaturity. I feel like I, unfortunately, at 36 years old, I'm still trying to prove to my family that I'm a bad girl. And so I'm just like, you like everything Jewish, therefore I don't. Um, (laughs) uh, That's maybe I'm wasting some time there in my life with that. I mean, I I have to say- I mean, a lot of- Sorry, go on. Yeah. I was going to say one of like my favorite moments of working on this whole project was this um, hour and a half long conversation I had with Lior Sternfeld, who's a scholar of Iranian Jews. Like I loved nerding out with him so much. So, and, and I'm telling you about what an enthusiastic Hebrew school kid I was. So obviously I have a hunger and a thirst. Um, and so it is a little sad that I, out of spite, am kind of denying myself the, um, the pursuit of that hunger and thirst, but not completely, because obviously I made appearances pretty Jewish. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, this has been really cool. I mean, like you're really an audio hero for me, so thanks for taking the time. Thanks for saying that, Sandy, and thanks for all of your great questions. Thank you again, Sharon, for such an awesome conversation. Vibratite is produced by me, Sandy Fox, and this episode was also made in collaboration with Jewish Currents Magazine at jewishcurrents.org. You can follow us on social media or check out our other episodes in English and Yiddish at vibratite.com. For our Yiddish-speaking listeners, mevet sein zurück in the Porvachnerum mit neue Episoden Vibratite auf unser heilige Mama löschen. And uh, yeah, thanks. Sei gesund.